And while the kids are leaving, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Now, uh, my preaching uh, through Revelation got a little bit derailed, had a wee medical incident uh, March 23rd, or March, <laughs> October 23rd. So uh, we're back at it. Um, so we had two messages and then we, we kind of took a break. We're back at it. I will be here a while, I think. Pray for me as uh, this is challenging. It's not challenging so much yet, but it will get challenging. All right, Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. I encourage you to turn there in your own Bibles. Once you find that, let's give our attention to God's Word being read. Hear the word of the Lord. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's word. We thank him for it. I need to pray, and I think you do too. And We need the Spirit's help during this time. So I invite you to join me in a prayer of preparation. Let's pray. Father, as your word lies open before us, we know that there is a work to be done in our lives as a result of this word. And we're asking for that to happen. Would you empower and bless the preaching of your word now so that we may see Christ in all his glory, so that we may understand ourselves correctly in relationship to you. And Father, that that we may be encouraged. Lord, you do the work here and I'm merely a messenger so keep me faithful to this word and 
cause your living and active word to be planted in our hearts for the effect that you intend to bring in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are many here I know have had to deploy, being a military town. So many of you have had to do that. And I think you never forget what your own families experience. Now, I know it's great to have the technology of an iPad or you know, some sort of video conferencing to, to see the faces of your loved ones and, and to talk. But, but certainly no one is kidding themselves that, that it's the same as being home and physically present. We get that. Well, Christians have, I think, an even greater sense. We have that longing to be with Jesus. And we do have the certain, absolutely certain Christian hope that one day Jesus will return bodily and he will be with us in our resurrected bodies and we will then enjoy perfect fellowship with him forever. But until that day, we do have the promise of Jesus' continued spiritual presence. I'll remind you what he said before he ascended to heaven when he commissioned his followers to make disciples at the end of Matthew. And he said he, he promised to be with them to the end of the age. And I, I do take it that, that we do have the presence of Jesus because we have his word. And even though we cannot behold Jesus with our physical senses, his genuine, uh, sorry, his, his presence is genuine. And I would say this as well, that Jesus' spiritual presence is not passive. And that's, I think, what we can take from this section of the book of Revelation. Now, as we, we will move through, but as we're going to see, John is about to receive some, some very detailed warnings for the church and, and a series of descriptive visions. And these are meant to encourage the believers in the face of some very difficult circumstances. In fact, he writes earlier in this that, that taking up this book, it's a blessing. You are blessed to read it. And that's what he wants for them. So there's encouragement that comes from this. Now, as John receives this vision from the Lord, what he does, he gets a picture of Jesus and Jesus among the churches. Now, because this book of Revelation, of course, is for us today, we have that same assurance that Jesus is among us. And so I want us to consider that reality this morning as we look at this passage of Scripture. And I, I found no other creative way to do this apart from just three simple headings under which to kind of gather some thoughts and seek to make some application. So the first heading is simply patient endurance. Secondly, I'm entitling the, the Real Jesus. And third, Mystery Revealed. So, patient endurance, the real Jesus, and mystery revealed. First, patient endurance. I have this, uh, this enduring memory from my childhood, something my father would often say. And if I was getting restless or complaining that something was taking too long, he would say, Patience, prudence. And that would always annoy me. It would really annoy me. And my name's not patience, or prudence, I should, would say. And, and, and looking back on this thing that he would say, his, his saying, of course, uh, well, makes no sense whatever to me. I think it's just something that he made up. And the only thing I could connect in, in terms of a, a real 
thing was this uh, vocal duo called Patience and Prudence McIntyre. Anyway, what he was doing, I think, in his own way, he was simply encouraging me to be patient, to endure whatever perceived discomfort I was experiencing, and not fret. Patience. Prudence. <laughs> and, and we get this, parents, right? It's a lesson we're constantly teaching children. The, the infant, the, the juvenile, wants what they want, and they want it now. And pa parents, you, you teach them to be patient, to wait, to endure some measure of discomfort. And that, that's an important lesson for Christians, too. While we wait for Jesus to return, to eventually make everything right. From verses 4 and 5, we see here in the text, we know that John is writing to the seven churches that are in Asia and that this message that he has received from the Holy Spirit and from Jesus Christ. So that's the source of what he's getting. And in our text, the apostle is calling for or simply describing a believer's need for patient endurance in Jesus. Now, the Apostle John certainly needed it. He describes the setting where he received this revelation. John had been exiled on this island, Patmos. This is now under the rule of Emperor Domitian. Now, if you, you may be familiar with your geography, some of you have traveled there. Um, this Patmos is a small island in the Aegean Sea, and it is off the coast to the west of these cities that he identifies here in verse 11. This island was probably a penal colony. So uh, I, I, some scholars say that the inmates, those who were exiled to this place, would have to work the mines. I don't know what they mined. But he was there, we're told in verse 9, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's why he was there, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, some, some Bible scholars point out that the emperor during that time had, in fact, demanded worship as Lord and Savior. So, the Lord and Savior is the emperor. Of course, as a Christian leader, John's insistence that the only Lord and Savior was Jesus was probably problematic. And perhaps he was just chosen. You know, you want to you hold to this belief? We'll send your leader out. But I want you to notice here that John didn't claim that his suffering was unique. Right? He, you see this in the text. He identified with his readers as, as one with them, right? Your brother and partner in the tribulation. Your brother and partner. But also a partner in the kingdom of Jesus. So, it's all mixed together. He's a brother and partner in tribulation, but also, in every sense, a partner in the kingdom in Jesus. Now, this kingdom idea, that's, that's the domain of all who acknowledge Jesus as the Christ. That's the domain of all who declare Christ's ultimate authority over all things, and that's beginning with their own selves. Now, just as a, a brief aside here, I think sometimes Christians are confused about the kingdom of God. And maybe, and I just observe this over the way in which churches talk about their own mission and what they do. Sometimes Christians are unsure of how the church and the kingdom are related. 
Sometimes churches equate their own work with being part of the kingdom, and, and to some extent they are, or, or having some part in building the kingdom. Well, as Christ, Messiah, the anointed of God, Jesus, of course, is the kingdom's king. He declared that all authority in heaven and earth already belongs to him. That's Matthew 28, 18. And, of course, Jesus' disciples know that. But the reality is, and we know this today, while we know that Jesus is king over all, we know that the world around us does not recognize that yet. They don't see it. That's the tension, right? It's already, but it's some sense not yet. And, And the book of Revelation is really the telling of how at some point all of creation will eventually come to see and submit to the rule of Christ. Now, these seven churches to whom John is, is writing are they're actual cities, and you can look them up on a, your Bible map. If you have a, a paper Bible, they're likely in the back there. They're actual cities, but what they do is that they really represent all the churches on earth and in every time. So the church here is not the same as the kingdom. Certainly, churches are comprised of kingdom citizens representing the kingdom of Jesus to the world. And let me just give you an illustration of how this works and the distinction. Now, those who have come through the membership seminar will remember this, but just by illustration, we all get that there's a a U.S. embassy in Berlin. There's one in Ottawa. I looked this up. There's one in London. And those embassies are there. They're there not to be embroiled in the government or politics of the host nation. What they're there for, they're solely interested in the interests of the U.S. government and its citizens. The U.S. Embassy in Berlin is not to be involved in the politics of Germany. They are interested in the interests of the United States of America. We get that. Well, the same is true for the churches of Asia in Revelation and for every true church, including this one. We gather here, brothers and sisters, not for the sake of this nation. Yes, inasmuch as we are proclaiming Christ, yes, but not in the interests of the United States of America, but solely for the purpose of representing the interests of King Jesus to the world around us and being there for the citizens of the kingdom. So you might say it this way, that the churches to whom John is writing, all churches, are really ambassadorial outposts, embassies of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So here we are. We are an embassy and we're interested in uh, the interests of Jesus, our King. And we know this to be true as well. To continue the illustration, certain U.S. embassies in recent history have come under attack, right? They've been overrun. Benghazi, Libya, one example. So as an apostle, church leader, John knew full well that it could and would certainly be difficult for the church. The Roman Empire had become hostile to the church. This should not have been a surprise. And again, as we move through Revelation, we're going to see this. The book will paint a picture that Christians should not expect to avoid suffering. Persecution and even dying for the sake of Christ should certainly be reckoned as a possibility. Now, in the letters that follow this, there's some specific letters in chapters 2 and 3. 
you'll see there specific suffering will be acknowledged. And, and I think that there's, even as John is writing this as a partner in the tribulation, I, I don't doubt that he remembered Jesus' words when Jesus said, if the world hates you, and certainly he felt hated by the world. He felt hated by the emperor being exiled in Patmos. The world hates you. Know that it has hated me before it hated you. Jesus said that. And Jesus, speaking about the end of the age, told his disciples what to expect. He said to them, they will, and what age that would be, that's, we can talk about that in another context, but whatever that age is, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. This isn't you might be. To his disciples, he said, you will be. The apostles, of course, were familiar with suffering for the sake of Christ. After the initial spread of the gospel, it all seemed to be going great in, at the beginning of Acts. Some of them had been imprisoned, miraculously freed shortly after. They were imprisoned again and then beaten. And then not long into Acts, we find Stephen, a faithful servant of the church. He was stoned to death. And the reality of that hatred for the gospel, for Jesus, for the church is in its association with Jesus. That certainly hit home to John himself in the early days of the church. His own brother, James, was killed by the sword, by Herod. Peter himself, another apostle, he would be martyred. And he said this in his first epistle. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, rejoice, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You see, John is a partner in this tribulation, but he's looking to the end. And that's what the book of Revelation is. There's going to be suffering, church. But look to the glory. John lived it. And in this context, he's likewise writing to those who are experiencing a fiery trial of testing. And the hope for believers, and this is true for us today, the hope for believers is not that difficulties will be eliminated. I know we're in a, a, a time of relative peace and ease, but this is kind of unique in the world. And we have no guarantee that that will continue, brothers and sisters. So the hope for us as believers is not that that difficulty would be eliminated, but that Jesus himself would triumph over that as he taught them. He said to his disciples, in the world you will have tribulation but with a focus on the glory at the end. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, like I said, we haven't experienced that kind of suffering in this part of the world for the sake of the gospel, but all we have to do is look around at other parts of the world. There are believers today who do. And this word is to them too. And we must accept the possibility, even the certainty that we might, that we might, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, 
suffer. Let's prepare ourselves. I'm no prophet here. I'm not saying this is going to happen. But as we see the world and even our government turn against the truth of the word of God, we will find an increasing measure being ostracized, perhaps losing jobs, losing business opportunities, losing a place in the community. So our confidence from this book of Revelation as we move through it is that Jesus has overcome the world and we may face prosecution. Our children may even face a violent death. But Jesus has and will make it right and triumph over his enemies. Now, in order to endure tribulation, what John needed and what Christians need is to have a right understanding of Jesus, and that's really my next heading here, the real Jesus. When I come to work during the week, I... Normally dressed in a pair of khakis and a button shirt. I'm kind of old-fashioned that way. I just like some people, shorts and flip-flops. I just not me. Everybody says I'm kind of stuffy. I realize I am. Uh, they call it business casual. I think it's a respectable way to dress at work. Anyway, several weeks ago, I was still going to cardiac rehab. I would come into the church office after those sessions, still wearing my training shoes. You know, the, the workout gear, dressed for the gym. I can't remember who it was, but someone commented how shocked they were to see me attired that way. It just seemed like out of context. Who are you? You go to the gym. <laughs> I did, you know, it, it's not that odd. I, mean, I run into some of you at the landing. But we all get that, right? And it particularly happens uh, when, when you only see a person in the same context all the time. And perhaps you've experienced this, the guy you work with at the office. And, and then you get invited to the Memorial Day cookout, and there he is in shorts and throwing a Frisbee. You go, that's him? What skinny legs, you know? And maybe. <laughs> well, when John first met Jesus, he was fishing with James, his brother. And Jesus called him to follow, and, and his life was forever changed as he became one of Jesus' apostles. He was with Jesus for three years. He, he saw the miracles, so, so his understanding of Jesus certainly expanded. He saw him heal. He saw people released from the power of demons. He saw him change the weather. He saw him raising the dead. He saw Jesus in this glorified state speaking Moses and Elijah, and he was there when Jesus was, was beaten and crucified. John ran to the tomb when he heard that Jesus' body wasn't there. He was with Jesus on the shore when Jesus cooked up some fish on that breakfast. And then he saw him taken up to heaven before their eyes with the promise that he would, he would return in like manner. But understand, from John's perspective, he'd only seen him in, in a human earthly context. He had never witnessed him in heaven. But now in this vision facilitated by the Holy Spirit, John now encounters the real Jesus in the heavenly context. And this vision that John has reveals aspects of Jesus his early experience could not reveal to him. Verse 10, he tells us, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. In the Spirit. In his Spirit, aided by the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural experience on the Lord's day. And he heard, and he says, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. A loud voice like a trumpet. Now, I know what a trumpet sounds like. I used to play one in high school. 
and I still remember the valve patterns and I could play a basic scale in C. A trumpet can be loud, very loud. The crisp tones, I know that they pierce through other sounds, but none of those tones have ever, have ever sounded to me like a voice. I could never put that together. That doesn't sound like someone speaking. I've never heard someone speak that sounds anything like a trumpet. And I think John here is drawing on the best analogy he can find. John is telling us that the voice he hears behind him is, is unlike any other voice. It's a voice of clarity. It's a voice of authority. And it can be heard above all else. And it pierces through any other sound. And that voice, John tells us in verse 11, explains what he should do. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. This is a command to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira, Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Again, these seven churches, actual cities in Asia Minor, in that inland to the east of Patmos. And I would take it, certainly there are other churches in that region, but these are really symbolic because it's a number seven. It's a, a symbol of completion. If you look, those churches are kind of organized in a circle. And it might be a, a trade route that, that people would pass through, you know. So it's representative represents all the churches in all the times and in every place, the completion. But then who is this voice, this piercing voice of authority? And at this point, John turns around, this is verse 12, and he sees, or he tells us what he sees initially. He sees seven golden lampstands. Those aren't explained yet. They will be later. But in the midst of them, verse 13, he says one like a son of man, and that's important. One like a son of man. Now you may refer, uh, remember from the Gospels, Jesus' self-reference, he called himself the son of man. The son of man came to seek and save the lost, he said. That descriptive title, one like a son of man, which is to say in the form of, likened to a human man, yet not merely that, and this title, it, it harkens back, of course, to the messianic description in Daniel. I remind you, it says there in Daniel 7.13, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. More, but like. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Now, here, here in John's vision, we get specific details that, that are meant to communicate something about the role and character of this one son, one like a son of man. Verse 13, we see a long robe with a golden sash. And I take it that that indicates the high priestly role of this one. I'm referring to Jesus, as it says in Hebrews, describing him. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to god through him since he always lives to make intercession for them so john is seeing in his vision this this priest long robe golden sash verse 14 we're told that the hair of his head was like was white like wool like snow and and this whiteness of the hair it speaks of his wisdom his eyes like a flame of fire. He, he sees with piercing vision. He knows all. Nothing escapes him. Verse 15, his feet are like burnished bronzed. 
showing there his, his kingly authority, his power to rule over all. His enemies are humbled under his feet. It's like we're told in Philippians 2 that he has a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And we're told again about his voice. It's a voice like the roar of many waters. That, that power and the totality of his voice, impossible to ignore. The authority, the thundering sound. In verse 16, we're told he has seven stars in his right hand. At this point, the meaning is unknown to John. That's explained later. And then from his, his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword. He speaks the very word of God to judge. We're told in Hebrews 4.12 that the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. He speaks the authority of the word of God. And finally in this description, his face shining like the sun in its potentially blinding full strength. This, the brightness and the glory of this person overwhelms John with fear. And at this vision, he falls to the ground at his feet like a dead man. He's stricken with fear at the awesomeness of what he senses are taking in and it's just overwhelming. But then the one he sees puts his right hand on John and comforts him, leaves no doubt in his mind as to who he sees. The voice says, fear not, I am the first and the last. The living one, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now the voice doesn't say he's Jesus, but John knows, John knows only Jesus died and returned to life by his own declaration and only the power of the Son of God has the power over death connecting the present vision with John's own understanding of Jesus, he now has this, this fuller picture of Jesus in both his humanity, but also in his glorious, all-powerful divinity. He sees him in a different context, the heavenly context. And admittedly, it's a vision. But the Lord wants him to understand something. And he grasps it. Now what, what this what the, what the Gospels, I should say, reveal about Jesus, that's vitally important for us if you read the Gospels. And, and what the epistles, the letters of the apostles, teach us about the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection, that, that Gospel message is vital for people to be saved and to grow in faith. But what strengthens our hope, our confidence in Jesus' return, is what John's vision will reveal. There are gonna be some tough days ahead for the disciples of Jesus. But disciples of Jesus know the real Jesus, that he is no mere man. He is not just a, another historical figure in the pantheon of now dead historical figures. And we get it. He is that to so many people. So many people who do not know the real Jesus and they have a, maybe a historical curiosity about him but nothing more. 
And from this vision, we get that Jesus is the all-wise, forever mediator priest whose voice thunders with authority and he will one day bring all things into subjection. He has overcome the world. The victory is his and he is coming back to judge the living and the dead and glory will be forever his. That's who Jesus is. And between now and then and that glorious appearing bodily of Jesus, we gather. Brothers and sisters, we gather like this. And, and in our hearts, we, we fall at his feet in worship. He is worthy to be exalted above all. And that's good for us to do because when we exalt him, it rightly orients us before God. It does that. And it rightly orients us before the rest of the world knowing who we are in relation to the world. We're not them. We belong to another kingdom. We know who our king is. And that's good for people who don't know Jesus yet that we gather like this and exalt him because Jesus himself said, inasmuch as he is lifted up, he exalted, he will draw people to himself. The real Jesus John saw him in his heavenly context. Well, third, we have the mystery revealed, mystery revealed. As a kid, I, uh, I like to read those Ellery Queen. They were juvenile novels. Maybe you're familiar with them. I don't know if they exist anymore. Anyway, to this day, I still like movies, drama stories that involve solving a mystery, and whether that's in a novel or a movie. And you know what the satisfying thing about a mystery is that it gets resolved, Right? Try to figure it out. What's this? What's that part? And it gets resolved in the end. Nobody likes a story where the mystery is unresolved and left you hanging. Well, the biblical idea of mystery is of something that has been hidden but is now revealed. And oftentimes, the declaration that something is indeed a mystery, in fact, coincides with the revelation itself. John now knows that the vision he is seeing is depicting the risen Christ in his glory. It depicts him in his power and his authority. And he, is knowing, he knows that he's going to see some things that he is supposed to write down and send to the churches. So what of these golden lampstands and the stars in the hand of the one like the Son of Man, who is Jesus, these ordinary observable things that are now infused with some special meaning. And it remained a mystery until Jesus gave it meaning. So perhaps the time of tension, seven stars, seven lampstands, time to understand it may be short, but it was certainly mysterious. Verses 12 and 13, he says, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, then in verse 16, we see these two things. In his right hand, he held seven stars. So what's the meaning? What's the purpose of these images? And in the vision, it is explained to him. Verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars, stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. So he's going he's to unpack it for him. Now, the mystery here is not merely the presence of the symbols, but I would suggest to you, it is the very nature of Jesus' relationship with the church. That's the mystery that is being revealed. Well, first, what are these 
stars that Jesus is holding in his right hand. He explains. Seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Angels of the seven churches. Now, in my study, there was a lot of discussion about these angels. From the scripture, we know the word in the Greek, angelos, is simply messenger. That's all it means. That's just messenger. Some speculate that each church has a guardian angel, but I don't think that that's plausible because the messages to the churches beginning in chapter 2, they include some measure of rebuke. So he wouldn't be rebuking righteous angels who are his servants. He wouldn't be rebuking Michael and other supernatural beings intervening in the human circumstance at the behest of God. He's not rebuking them. I, I really conclude here that these angels are simply not special angels. They're just messengers, pastors, bishops, overseers, elders, those entrusted with the word ministry, with the prayer ministry in the local churches. And stars are effectively meant to reflect the light of Christ among the churches by proclaiming the gospel. So think of it this way. Again, not exalted angels, not worthy of any kind of worship, just ones who happen to be messengers. So considered this way. I am an angel in this church, a messenger, along with Jim and Aaron and Phil and Bob and Josh and Sam. We are the messengers, gospel proclaimers, entrusted with the stewardship of the word among you. And I take from this that Jesus has a great interest in protecting and empowering those who are entrusted with preaching and teaching in the church. And so Jesus is holding us as he is holding every other man he is called to proclaim his name. So nothing extraordinary, but, but know this. Jesus has got the pastors. But this is in the context of the lampstand, so we get to there to the golden lampstands. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what do we know about the church from scriptures? Jesus said that he would build the church on the very foundation of people who confess Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's Matthew 16, 18. So the church, by necessity, is people who identify with Christ and make known to the rest of the assembly that they belong to Christ, that they confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and they routinely gather with them. The Apostle Paul taught that the church gathered is the temple, the very dwelling place of God, 2 Corinthians 6.16. Paul, so, Paul also used the imagery of marriage to describe the relationship between Christ and the church, a mystery revealed in Ephesians 5.32. So, so why, why Seven golden lampstands in John's vision. Well, of course, the seven lines up with the seven churches, so it's the completion. It's the totality, that perfect number. But consider this. A lampstand or a candlestick, it's not the source of light, is it? It is that which holds up the light. The lampstand holds up the light. It isn't the light. Who is the light? What's the light? Well, before we get there, that lampstand is also golden, indicating that, that it's precious. It's a golden lampstand. But in John's gospel, he introduces Jesus 
as the light of men, John 1.4. He introduces Jesus, the light that shines in the darkness, John 1.5. He introduces Jesus as the true light which gives light to everyone, John 1.9. So this church, that church is precious, and, and it's precious because it's that which holds forth the light of Christ who is the very truth. In order to, as a result of holding forth that light, to redeem and rescue people from darkness. It's simple gospel proclamation. A candlestick shines the light of Christ. So the purpose of the church we get from this is to proclaim Christ, to hold him up as the object of worship in order to be glorified, to be magnified, to be followed, to be obeyed. Uh, Paul, in describing uh, to Timothy, he says this, the church of the living God, he describes it as a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church, entrusted with holding up Christ, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And that description, it should remind us we are a golden lampstand here at Overland Hills Church precious to the Lord Jesus. It should remind us to keep the gospel front and center. If the church was built by Christ, bought and sanctified by the blood of Christ, then we have no business doing anything else at all. And there's lots of things that churches get themselves embroiled in these days, causes and movements and things. If it's not holding up and shining forth the light of Christ, then we are wasting our time. And we are not stewarding well what God has given to us. Well, what does this all mean for the church today? What does it, what does it mean for us here at Overland Hills Church? Come back to the text. There is one, sorry, where is the one who is the one like the Son of Man in John's vision? And we see him. He is among the golden lampstands. He is holding the angels in his right hand. The mystery about the churches is that Jesus is among them. Jesus is not distant, and though we cannot see him, brothers and sisters, he's here right now. Where the church is, know this, the true church that proclaims Christ, where the true church is, Jesus is present, and he is going to ensure that he is empowering men to proclaim his truth. No credit to the men who do it. It's what Jesus is doing. He's holding the stars. He's among the churches. He's got it. He will not abandon his church. And this message was so important, as we'll read in the letters. Some of them are exhorted to hang on even through death. And Jesus is among those churches. Jesus is holding those angels in his right hand. He will not abandon his church. So brothers and sisters, Jesus is here. And so while we struggle, and we will struggle against the opposition and unbelief in the world, and while we still battle against our own sin, 
We rest. We rest in what Jesus has accomplished at the cross. That's the anchor, the gospel. Jesus died for your sins, rose again on the third day to guarantee eternal life. And while we live in this life, we will bumble and fumble along at times and we'll eventually all die unless Christ returns in the meantime. But there is a glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ when we, he will raise us up and we will joyfully live with him forever. So the call to us, be faithful. He's got us. Be faithful. And the real Jesus, he's, he's not a, a limping, beaten man, but he is a glorious priest king possessing all authority in heaven and on earth and he is with us here spiritually giving us everything that we need to endure and to be faithful until that day he takes us to be with himself forever John says you're blessed to read this book and I pray brothers and sisters that we will find the blessing of knowing Christ is among us knowing that he's got a plan worked out and that he will cause us to endure until that day. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the vision that you gave to your servant, John. We're grateful for what he saw. And God, we know that that was meant to bless us, and so, we, Father, we take that to heart. Lord Jesus, thank you for being among us, for not letting us go. You died for us to sanctify us by the washing water with the word, and God, you're not letting us go. So Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your presence here. Keep us faithful, we pray. Keep us fixing our eyes on you. You, the author and finisher of our faith. You, for the, for, who for the joy set before you endured your own cross, despising its shame. Help us keep our eyes fixed on you as we wait through whatever you should call us to walk through as we wait for your glorious appearing. All glory be to Christ. Amen.